Good morning. Today's first scripture reading is taken from the book of Psalm, chapter 40, verses 9 to 12, also found on page 549 of our Pew Bibles. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, as you know, O Lord. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. I do not conceal your love and your truth from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, O Lord. May your love and your truth always protect me, for troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. Our second scripture reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 22, verses 39 to 46, also found on page 1022. Jesus prays on the Mount of Olives. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew a stone's throw beyond them and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you open our minds and hearts to hear your word being spoken to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Esther. I hope you'll keep your Bibles open to that passage in Psalm 40, for we will be referring to it in just a bit. Um, we've built our current series of messages as a pre-Easter, Easter and beyond series of messages for the ages. For our part, that is the preacher's part, we're doing our preaching in, of this series before, during, and after Holy Week and Easter Sunday. So that part is clear enough. But we're also engaging with God's word and the gospel from before, during, and after our time, aren't we? These are truths of eternity that we find here in God's word and Holy Scripture. So we've been in the Old Testament 
a bit and will be in the Old Testament a bit more, actually throughout this series, all the way to the end of April. And specifically, we started with a couple of Sundays in Psalm 110. We're now in Psalm 40 for several weeks, and by the time we finish up at the end of next month, we'll have also been through Psalm 41 and the heart, not the whole thing, but the heart of Proverbs 25. Now, you may have wondered, and you may still be wondering, what have three Psalms and a proverb to do with Easter? And the answer, once again, you've heard this before, is only everything. First off, each of these three Psalms, 110, 40, and 41, are messianic Psalms. That means whatever direct application they may have had to the time, place, and person of the writer, in this case, David, or indirect application to our time, our place, and our lives, the psalm is also and ultimately a prophetic word concerning the Messiah of Israel, whom the New Testament calls the Christ, and further reveals him to be Jesus of Nazareth. For the second point, I, I must reinforce a term or phrase of biblical theology that we've used, but not for a while. And that phrase is the dynamic fulfillment of prophecy. This phrase, the dynamic fulfillment of prophecy, is the occasional observation that a prophetic word in the Bible might have more than one moment, one point, or one person, place, or time of prophetic fulfillment. Throughout history, maybe there is an original, then there's an interim, then maybe even a final fulfillment of a particular prophecy. This is known as, because there are multiple fulfillments of the prophecy, the dynamic fulfillment of prophecy. In the case of our Psalms, 110, 40, and 41, each of them was written by David, and yes, each of them had meaning and a contemporary application to his, that is David's place, David's time, David's situation, and David's experience. But more importantly, especially for us today, they also look forward into the future to the person, place, time, situation, and experience of Messiah. In other words, the textual content, especially the prophetic elements, had an immediate contextual application in David's day to him, to his position as king, and to Israel at large, but even more eternally important truths and spiritual applications of the text go all the way to the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as revealed in the New Testament, and all the way to us and our salvation and our hope in Jesus Christ, and even to all who will ever come to know God through a saving and sustaining faith in Jesus Christ after us. This is an example of the dynamic fulfillment of prophecy, and we're a part of it. The third reason we're in the Psalms throughout the Easter season is we're doing just what the apostles and the early church did right from the beginning. We're showing how God's word in Holy Scripture, all of it, points to Jesus from of old, but especially in the Psalms and the prophets. We rarely ever hear or teach this in the church today, and I'm not really sure why. But there is great theological meaning and exceptional practical gospel usefulness, hearing, knowing, and proclaiming this Jesus whom they crucified and whom God raised from the dead is the Christ. 
the Messiah. And he, this Messiah, this Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth, was foretold from of old. We see this quite often in a number of places in the book of Acts, especially, but also elsewhere in the New Testament. In his Pentecost sermon, the first sermon after the Holy Spirit birthed the church and came to reside in and among and within God's people, the Apostle Peter reasoned from the scriptures, the Old Testament in their case, showing his audience the profound prophetic connections in their day of Israel's Messiah and Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Men of Israel, this is Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 28. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst and as yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for it to hold him. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord Yahweh always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And that is a quoting of Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And here's the point, and it's one of the key theological, spiritual, practical truths in the whole of Scripture about the whole of Scripture. The whole Bible either refers directly to the person and saving work of Jesus Christ, or it points us to the person and saving work of Jesus Christ, or it reveals to us the character, will, and ways of the person and saving work of Jesus Christ. The Bible is a complete and utterly supernatural book of truth, wisdom, prophecy, and fulfillment. This would be an excellent place to pause and consider our central truth of the message. You have it there in your inside left of your bulletin up in the, uh, up in the corner, or I guess across the top, I should say, is probably a better way of putting it. It's a little long, but I don't think it's too complex. Jesus Christ, the son of David, so I mentioned earlier that we made a little bit of adjustment for this morning. Uh, our series is... Jesus Christ, Lord of glory, Son of God, word made flesh, and, and indeed he is Son of God, but also a title for the Messiah, which Jesus himself took upon himself, was also Son of David, that is, one that would be in the line of David as foretold by the prophets. That's the import of this title, the Son of David. So Jesus Christ, the Son of David, came to proclaim the good news of God, take upon himself the sins of his people, offer himself as the perfect and perfectly satisfactory substitute for sin as he still makes intercession for the transgressors. And that would include us. Jesus Christ, the son of David, came to proclaim the good news of God, 
take upon himself the sins of his people, offer himself as the perfect and perfectly satisfactory substitute for sin as he still makes intercession for the transgressors. So I, 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 would, I do feel the need. I'm a little weak this morning, um, both my voice and in physically feeling that way. So uh, let's pause for just a moment to pray. And I, as I do so, I'd like to offer this morning a revised version of an old Anglican prayer that I picked up from Alistair Begg, who is one of my favorite preachers ever. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. What we need not, protect us. Where we have fallen short, forgive us. In Jesus' name, amen. So while preparing for this message, I turned to the Google machine and did a search. And this is what I put in the search window. What is the statistical probability that Jesus of Nazareth was or is the Messiah prophesied in the Bible? What is the statistical probability that Jesus of Nazareth was or is the Messiah prophesied in the Bible? And I landed upon an excellent article entitled, The Mathematical Probability That Jesus Is the Christ. Somebody has done this. Isn't that exciting? That's great. This article was from Empower International or Empower Global. You can look it up yourself. The article opens. Listen to this. The reason prophecy is an indication of the divine authorship of the scriptures and hence a testimony to the trustworthiness of the message of the scriptures is the minute probability of fulfillment. That means very low probability. It means highly improbable. For example, what is the likelihood of a person predicting today the exact city in which the birth of a future leader would take place well into this 22nd century, though it was not a place his parents ever lived, nor would he. This is indeed, still quoting, this is indeed what the prophet Micah did 700 years before Messiah's birth. Further, what is the likelihood of predicting the precise manner of death a new unknown religious leader at the time would experience a thousand years from now a manner of death unknown to us today and to remain unknown for hundreds of years more. Yet this is what David did in the Psalms around 1000 BC. Some would put, it as, put him as early as uh, 900 BC, but a long time ago and a long time before the Messiah showed up on our scene. And just... Uh, as an aside, if you're interested in probably the, the clearest prophecy of Jesus and his death, check out Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is probably the clearest expression, prophetic expression of the death of Jesus, and it's exceptionally detailed. And we read the accounts in the Gospels and we wonder, oh my goodness, this could only have been the Holy Spirit seeing ahead. As, as we find out in Scripture, he knows the end from the beginning. Turns out 
a professor of mathematics and statistics at Westmont College, our own Eunice Hills uh, alma mater, worked through this problem with more than 600 of his students. They came up with what all agree, Christian and non-Christian st st statisticians alike, is a reasonable, even conservative number as to the minute probability that one man, namely Jesus of Nazareth, could ever or would ever fulfill the prophecies concerning Messiah in the Bible. And we know he alone fits every prophecy perfectly and eternally. So they literally did the math. And the conservative probability that just eight, just eight of the major messianic, messianic rather, prophecies in the Bible would apply to and be fulfilled by or in one man, and which of course they do, is one in 10 to the 17th power. So if you want to envision that, that's a 10 followed by 17 zeros. There's also a very helpful illustration included in the article just to give a bit of perspective. If we had 10 to the 17th power loonies, which would be a lot of loonies, and we dumped them out over the state of Texas, if we had 10 to the 17th power of them, they would cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. That's how many loonies are 10 to the 17th power. And in order for the probability to work, we'd have to pick out the Messiah loony in one try. That's one to the 10, 10th, and 17th power. It gets better the probability of 40 more of the many additional clearest biblical prophecies concerning Messiah, so we're saying the first eight plus 40, so 48 of them, applying to and being in or by one man, which of course they are, is 10 to the 157th power. That's a terribly lot more loonies. That's unbelievable. Here's the rub. Are, are you ready for this? I don't think you are, but, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. So, Eight prophecies, 10 to the 17th. 48 prophecies, 10 to the 157th. How many biblical prophecies do you think there are in the scripture of the Messiah? Any guesses? Throw it out there. Don't, don't be afraid. How many? Four hundred and fifty-six. There are four hundred and fifty-six biblical messianic prophecies, each one applying to, fulfilled in, and embodied by Jesus of Nazareth, either already or still pending for the future, and there are a few of those, but the vast majority of them already done and prophesied in Old Testament scripture. The math on 454 biblical messianic prophecies is beyond our human ability to comprehend. The probabilities go beyond the cumulative, listen to this, the cumulative, historical, from the beginning, human population of the world. It comes as close to a proof as any historical artifact or any written or historical witness ever could, even eyewitness accounts of these things, which of course we also have. The Westmont professor behind the probability study concluded, 
Quote, the fulfillment of the eight prophecies alone proves that God inspired the writing of the prophecies in Scripture. Any person who minimizes or ignores the significance of the biblical identifying signs concerning the Messiah would be foolish. Any person who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. My friends, almost all these biblical prophecies, at least the hundreds already fulfilled by one man, Jesus of Nazareth, come from the Old Testament, which is why we're in the Psalms this Easter season. The written word validates the living word made flesh. Now, turning to our text for this morning, finally, I want you to notice there has been a flow from the first verses of Psalm 40. It began in the first few verses, the psalmist confessing his trust in God as demonstrated by his commitment to wait patiently for the Lord Yahweh. Then we saw him proclaiming promises of blessing on all who do the same. In verses 6, 7, and 8, we saw a distinct shift toward a deep commitment to obey the word of God. Indeed, the psalmist declares his delight in doing God's will rather than his own. It's at this point we begin to realize David is also writing about another in another time who would come after him and who was greater than him, namely the Messiah, who the New Testament reveals to be Jesus of Nazareth. So this brings us to Psalm 40, verses 9 through 12. Okay, so I've got four verses, four points, and about four minutes. We can do this. Actually, I've got more than four minutes, but not all that many more minutes. I'm just saying, tighten up your seatbelts, sports fans, we're going racing. Well, just kidding about that part. Um, as we look into verse 9 of Psalm 40, let's notice the celebration of his faithfulness. That would be our first point, the celebration of his faithfulness. And when I say his, I mean first David's, the psalmist's, and then secondly, the Messiah's, the celebration of his faithfulness. Here in verse 9, the flow of our text continues from verse 1 as the psalmist, for Messiah now, celebrates, or we could even say he proclaims his faithfulness. He has accomplished God's will. Look with me at verse 9. I have told the glad news of deliverance. That word deliverance could also be translated righteousness. Uh, but in the context, uh, the ESV uh, translators uh, determined that deliverance would be probably a better, more accurate contextual translation. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord Yahweh. I have not hidden your deliverance or righteousness within my heart. I have spoken, I have spoken of, uh, sorry, I just went past it, didn't I? So verse 9, I have told the gl glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord Yahweh. The celebration of his faithfulness. And we're going somewhere in the flow of this text and we're going, as I said before, from the beginning, verse 1, where he trusted God, to the middle, where he is blessed because of his faithfulness and, and imparts blessings on all who would do the same. 
And in verses 6, 7, and 8, he delights in doing the will of God. Uh, and the end, where we'll end up this morning, is I believe in Gethsemane and on the way to the cross. So here at the beginning, he celebrates his faithfulness. The second point would be here both psalmist and Messiah declare confidence in the deliverance and salvation of the faithful and loving God. That's number two. The deliverance and salvation of the faithful and loving God. Look with me at verse 10. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Here we see in the text that the one who is coming or or has come, whether it be the psalmist in his day or especially the Messiah in his, he did not hide for himself within my heart, it says, the deliverance and salvation and faithfulness of God. No, he has not concealed his steadfast love or his faithfulness from the great congregation. In other words, he has told it, he has proclaimed it, he has declared it in the congregation as he ought to have done, and as he was sent to do. So the celebration of his faithfulness, the deliverance and salvation of the faithful and loving God, that's number two, look with me there at verse 11. As for you, O Lord Yahweh, you will not restrain your mercy from me, your steadfast love, and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. I want us to think about this for just a, a bit. The life lived, this is number three, the life lived by, the, by true faith in the true and living God is a battle in this world at all times and in all places for all true believers. The life lived by true faith in the true and living God is a battle in this world in all times and in all places for all true believers. This is another one of those biblical truths that we don't hear very often in the church today. But friends, if we could just get a hold of this truth, believing it, understanding it, accepting it, and here's the harder part, expecting it, maybe we wouldn't be set back so much when attacks of temptation to sin come on or undeserved attacks of personal animus befall us or merely words and deeds of the flesh assail us, lacking any semblance of godly grace and mercy and compassion and love. But even so, we're really talking first this morning about the psalmist and second about Messiah from a prophetic point of view. Look with me at verse, one, verse 11 one more time. As for you, O Lord Yahweh, so we just get this picture of Messiah, and I I believe in Gethsemane, and we'll, we'll see that even more clearly in just a second, pouring his heart out to his Father. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Verse 12, for evils have encompassed me beyond number. Now that part we can, 
we can kind of get it, uh, you know, if this is Jesus speaking, the psalmist putting words in Jesus' future mouth. But what about the next one? My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. Well, Jesus had no sin of his own. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. So, so we think back into David's life, uh, whatever of it we have historically recorded in the Old Testament, um, in the historical books, and especially in the Psalms, 150 of them, more than half of which David wrote. We know that David had an uneven relationship with the Lord and an uneven relationship with righteousness. To the point where he was both an adulterer and a murderer an adulterer and a murderer to cover up his adultery. That's about as bad as it gets. So we can understand if this is David saying, my iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. We might even see that the the psalmist is writing for us because we know our own sin or if we're honest and if we're born again and if the Holy Spirit is convicting us of sin and righteousness, we know our own sin. So we can see that. But what about the Lord Jesus? Well, I believe verse 12 is looking as through a wormhole 90 or so, 900 or so years, maybe a thousand years, depending on your dating of David and the Psalms, into the future to Gethsemane and Golgotha, where Jesus Christ would be transformed into sin. Did you hear what I said? Transformed into sin. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to see this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, this isn't the only place this is stated, but this is probably the, the clearest place this is stated. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. One of the most remarkable statements you will ever see verse 21 the last verse of second corinthians chapter 5 i just i i want you to see this with your own own eyes now i'm reading it for the esv so it'll be a little bit different for you from the niv that the few bibles are in but i don't think it's terribly different for our sake he god if you if you look back at the verses before this is speaking of 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 god and he speaks of christ this he is god for our sake God made him Christ. So for our sake, God made Christ to be sin. This is something beyond taking upon himself our sin, which we talk about, and the Bible does too. That's biblical language. But but this is even more offensive. That Jesus became sin. That's awful. For our sake, God made Christ, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. Though he he had no sin of his own, he didn't know sin himself, but he took on our sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become, and this is a crazy statement. There are several of them like this, and it just it boggles my mind every time I read it, even right now. 
that we might become the righteousness of God. Let's understand this. Not Jesus being the righteousness of God, which of course he was before he took on our sin. But he takes on our sin and he becomes sin on our behalf that we might, in his place, in a sense, become the righteousness of God in our place and time. That is crazy. It's crazy talk. Turn with me to, you you guessed it, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Some more crazy talk here. And remember, my, my thesis here is that Psalm 40, verse 12, is a prophetic glimpse into the heart, mind, and experience of Jesus Christ in Gethsemane on his way to Golgotha and the cross. Verse, let's start at verse 7 because it, it, it provides all uh, of verse, uh, I'm sorry, verse 24 of, of chapter 7 because it really gets at what's being spoken of here, I think, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and also Psalm 40. Wretched man, now this is Paul speaking. This is not before he became a Christian and an apostle. This is him speaking as he's writing. This whole thing is in present continuous tense. It's not in past. It's not in perfect. It's in present continuous tense. This is his reality and his confession right now as he's writing. Verse 24, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Chapter 8, verse 1. I think, uh, if not the greatest verse in the whole Bible, it's certainly one of them. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life. I just love that phrase. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness, the likeness, not the substance, the likeness of sinful flesh... And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. This is crazy talk. Again, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. 
Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Now, we might be inclined, turn back to Psalm 40, we might be inclined to say something like, well, that's all well and good, but Jesus, and, and, and David for that matter, has already fought that fight. It is finished, right? Well, yes, in, in an historical and also eternal sense, that is true except that we still struggle with sin. And the Bible says we will still struggle with sin. And Jesus says we will still struggle with sin. And though Jesus did do all that was required and all that he could to teach us to live righteously, to pay for sin... And reconcile us to God in a very real sense. He just got the battle against the flesh, the world, and the devil started. That's why the Christian life, the true Christian life, is so hard and fraught with fightings within and fightings without, as Luther put it. And here in verse 12, I believe we get a glimpse into the heart and mind of Jesus as he does the very hard and inconceivable work of taking our sin upon himself. Maybe David was talking about his own sin, but Jesus was talking about ours. And he took upon himself our sin that we might become the righteousness of God. The celebration of his own faithfulness, psalmist and Messiah. The deliverance and salvation of the faithful and loving God. The persevering protection of the Lord's faithful and steadfast love. The life lived by faith in, in the true and living God is a battle in this world in all times and in all places for all true believers and now we're warned. And what does this all mean? Well, I think and I hope that it all adds up to Jesus Christ, the son of David, came to proclaim the good news of God. He came to take upon himself the sins of his people. He came to offer himself as the perfect and perfectly satisfactory substitute for sin. In fact, he became sin for us. And he still makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, where was that in Psalm 40? Well, it wasn't. I, I cheated a little bit. It's in Isaiah 53, verses 11 and 12, which we'll finish the service out with, okay? So, but just, I want you to hear these words once again. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord Yahweh. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart, I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord Yahweh, I will not restrain your mercy from you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, my heart fails me. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we 
Thank you for this word of prophecy. This word of grace and mercy. This word of love, steadfast love. The Hebrew word is chesed, which we really don't have any translation of in English, and so that's why it's translated in so many different ways, including steadfast love, faithful love, compassion, great mercy. We thank you for showing up on our scene and not only being an example for us, which you obviously are, and not only being our teacher, which obviously you are, not only being our healer, which obviously you are, and not only even being our savior, which obviously you are and Lord, but you gave yourself, yes, to the point of death, but you became sin for us. I don't know of another more profound truth than that. Thank you, Lord. Help us to live, though we know we won't, to live worthy of your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. The other clearest prophetic expression of the sacrifice of Christ and the manner by which he would die is found in Isaiah 53 starts really at Isaiah 52. Those of you who are familiar with the record knows it's 52.13 and following all the way through 53. I wanted you to hear the last two verses, which are a lot of lines um, from Isaiah 53. In the context of this message today, in, a con- in the context of Psalm 40, and particularly verse 12. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes, present tense, Everything else is is past tense, until now, present tense. And he makes intercession for the transgressors. That was about 700 years before Jesus showed up on our scene. Lord, thank you for this, your word, your prophetic word, your words of life, your words of truth. May we be your people increasingly in these days where there needs to be such a testimony of you shining brightly in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next time.